Good afternoon, and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. I'm Joe Dworsky, the president of retail banking for Supernet. And each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like yourself on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest is a seasoned banking executive who founded one of the leading fintech providers of reliable banking and lending solutions to the cannabis industry. She has spent close to 40 years in the credit union industry and back in 2014 saw the emerging cannabis industry needed banking solutions to service this underserved market in Colorado. As the CEO of Partner Colorado Credit Union, back in 2015, Sunday designed a full-scope cannabis banking program known as the Safe Harbor Program, and thus Safe Harbor was born to provide the unmet need of compliant banking and financial services to the rapidly growing U.S. cannabis industry. From this launching pad, Safe Harbor decoupled from the credit union back in 2021 and in 2022 became a publicly traded standalone company. Please welcome to today's show the CEO and president of Safe Harbor Financial, Sunday Seafried. Sunday, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here, Joe. Thank you. Let, let me just start. And, unrelated to the topic at hand, I love your name, Sunday. It's such a beautiful name. Is there an origin behind it? <laughs> you, you know, it's a it's actually a funny story because I my father was a Baptist minister my whole life and a missionary, and so. Everybody at church thought that, that he named me Sunday because it was his day of the week. <laughs> and I used to get teased horribly about that name. And I think it was only like 21 when I finally said, why do I have this name Sunday? Everybody else has a normal name in this family. And he really had the simple explanation that he liked the name Sandy, but it was too popular. So he changed the A to a U. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and thus, Sunday. Okay, good. I'm glad I asked the question. Now I know the origin. <laughs> well, thanks uh, for joining uh, the show today, and congrats on an impressive resume of success in, in banking and now cannabis banking. But before we jump into learning more about Safe Harbor, I'd like to take a step back uh, to share with our listeners more about your early days in banking back in, I think you started back in 1983, and how that led to your current role at Safe Harbor. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, never really thought I was going to be a banker. I really didn't uh, enter the banking world really through technology. When when computers were coming out, I was heavily into learning the computer uh, aspects and getting online and did a lot of things for the credit union with whom I was at that point in time in Germany in terms of getting them. They, they were on paper when I got there, went to batch processing, and then we went to online real time. So I got all that experience and when you're in the computer field and you're going through all those transitions, you learn a lot about banking. You know your product, actually, in the end. And so it made a lot of sense for me then to go into training once we got on real time. And, and then I went to branch manager and then I went to VP of marketing. And, and so my career just kept progressing and it was a really good career. And during that time, and I have I always encouraged my employees this too, is that during that time, I finished my undergraduate degree. And then at a certain point in time, you know, after 11 years, 
I was turned down for a position and, you know, a lot of people, I wanted to get out of marketing. It wasn't my favorite place to be. And my CEO at that point in time said, but you're so good at it. I said, no, I'm just really good at organizing. You know, it's not my thing. You know, in hindsight, I look back at that experience and I, and after launching Safe Harbor, I realized that what he meant, that doing something and doing it right and getting the right message out there has a lot to do with marketing, but it really has more to do with the manner in which you do business. So anyhow, I was turned down to get going to an operations job because I didn't have an MBA. So I said, okay, I'm going back to the States after 11 years. I'm going to get my MBA and that's never going to be a roadblock again. And that's exactly what I did. I, and I ended up the day after I got in country from Germany, I was no kidding at Partner Colorado Credit Union in an interview. I was like serendipitous. And they made me an offer uh, for a VP of operations, which is exactly what I wanted. And I tell people this story because I had to take a big cut in pay, but it's what I wanted in my career. I, I like to, to do things, to make things work, to implement things. And so I, I took that job and six years later, I became CEO. Wow. That, that's a great story. Wow. So it's, it was the one transition. You know, you hear many people have many moves to get to where they're at, but that's a great story that, you know, you got right to um, the credit union and moved up and then became uh, president and CEO. Well, what was the catalyst to form Safe Harbor while at the credit union? And can you talk about the risks with banking cannabis in this emerging market and how you best mitigated those risks? Sure. It was 2014, and a lot of CEOs wouldn't go down this path. It was too risky. It was federally illegal, and everybody was had the fear. If you if you get sideways with your regulators and and you end up having very long examination reports and management looks bad, a lot of times CEOs get terminated and moved on. And if you go into something like cannabis, which was federally illegal and you really, really messed it up, you know, you all your benefits are at risk. So there's a lot of CEOs who didn't want to lose benefits, who didn't want to risk their job, who were getting near retirement. Well, I was in the perfect situation because I was going to retire in 2014. I really had nothing to lose. I figure, well, I'm going to retire anyhow. If I crash and burn, I can still retire. <laughs> so this was, I didn't have anything to lose. My contract was up. And what really happened was the Colorado was booming at that point in time in 2014 when recreational became legal and there was money all over the state. And then you had to, on top of that, people were flying to Colorado for vacations because it was legal. And, and that's how it used to be. And Colorado was booming that way. Now it's not so, so much so because there's 38 states they can go to and actually buy cannabis. But the money was the issue. And, and being a banker, obviously, we pay attention to the money. And being in a credit union CEO position, we pay a lot of attention to our members in the community. And we just kind of took a look at the risk. And I heard stories straight from the industry participants. And that's probably what changed my mind right then and there from retiring and saying, somebody's got to do this. Mm -hmm. They were telling me stories about going to ATMs in the middle of the night with their children bundled up in car seats. And they had to do this so that they weren't carrying $30,000 around town in the daylight. But this was a horrible risk that they were taking. And these are, the cash was in the houses next to us. It was in the cars next to us. And I said, 
this is really scary when you, you, you know how much cash is running around town and, and we're not protected. So I really started educating the board. It was a safety issue for our members and for ourselves. And once you learn something, you can't unlearn it and you can't mm-hmm. ignore it. And so the board agreed, somebody's got to do this. And and that's how we started launching into developing the business plan and, and moving into cannabis banking. Interesting. Interesting. And I was just, you know, doing some of my due diligence before uh, today's uh, podcast and segueing to my next question, education. Could you hit on it a little bit? I heard in, in the last question, how critical has the education process been both, you know, to the industry and regulators to Safe Harbor's success? And can you talk about the role it has played in your business to where you are at today? In cannabis, education is everything. And I remember the first month I was doing interviews with our potential first accounts and the owners of these companies. And, and you know, they were all under the radar. Nobody was raising their hand and saying, hey, I'm a cannabis company. Everything's federally illegal. Come look at me. Nobody was talking about their business models. Nobody was sharing a lot of information. It was very quiet. And so I remember during the interview, one of the clients who became a client said, education is going to be everything for you to stay in this business. We see so many banks get in and so many banks fall out of it and nobody wants to do it. We're just so tired of not having bank accounts and people not having the perseverance to stick with it. So education is what you really have to understand is going to drive the success of what you do. And and that is exactly what I did. I brought the examiners along with me, the regulators along with me. I said, look what we're learning. This is how it works. But for the first two years, I onboarded every account, every client, because I wanted to make sure I was an expert while I was training regulators. They understood that I knew the risks that we were in and that the board, my board knew the risks. I would take them on site to the client businesses and show them the business to let them know what they had approved and and, and we were at risk. I mean, prosecution was a real fear for us. Who's going to get prosecuted for doing this? So I took on all the decision-making so that if the feds wanted to come in and prosecute somebody, I was I was the target because I, <laughs> in, uh, for the first two years, you just kind of hold your breath and, you know, wait and see. Interesting. You know, in, in the opening, you talked about how you decoupled from the credit union. And obviously, Safe Harbor was born within the credit union. Can you talk about you know, the decoupling, why you decoupled from the credit union, how the business model operates today when you're working with a bank. Sure. So we we were a very specialized division of the credit union. It was called Safe Harbor Private Banking at that point in time, and it was a DBA of the credit union. And, And we did that because, you know, you don't necessarily want to go out there in front of everybody and say, Harbor, Colorado is banking cannabis. Again, it was illegal on a federal level. We didn't know how the regulators would respond. We didn't know how the feds would respond. So we said, we'll we'll call this safe harbor private banking, and we'll put this group of people together that do nothing but specialize in cannabis banking. That's it. They don't do anything else but serve this industry and in a private banking mode. And so it just kept growing and growing and growing. And, And all of a sudden, this one risk called cannabis banking was taking up so much board time and then it just was taking up too much balance sheet space and it just grew to a monster without us even trying to was we didn't do any advertising for the first seven years we just had word of mouth that's it our clients started going across the country we were already serving 
remotely in a fintech manner our clients all over the states in in Hawaii in Alaska in Puerto Rico i mean it it just kept growing and growing and growing and the need was so big and the business became so big it was distracting the credit union from doing what it really needed to do as a credit union for their community so we we talked about and i said if we're going to we're either going to you know lose a competitive advantage here that we've created for the last 7 years or we need to separate the business from Partner Colorado Credit Union and really see how we can expand this business. And that's when the board uh, management made the decision that we would start looking at our options. And decoupling it just meant we opened the new company and Safe Harbor Financial, and we took all the assets and we took all the staff. So the, the, you know, the employees that came with us, including myself, were all Partner Colorado employees. We were fully owned at that point in time by Partner Colorado Credit Union. And then we ended up taking that decoupled group of people and assets and business, and we went to the public market through a SPAC transaction. And that's how we got on the NASDAQ. And so now we, we have the freedom to actually work across the country and to expand our business model and not distract Partner Colorado. And there's a lot of trust and a lot of good relationships between Partner Colorado and even myself and my my team, because well, you know, I was their CEO for twenty years. So we, you know, there's a lot of trust involved in allowing something like that to happen. Now we work with we work with more than one financial institution because again, we got a little too big for the balance sheet at Partner Colorado, and we were stressing their concentration limits. And so now we have a couple more banks, and we can just manage what partner's appetite is in terms of holding cannabis and then manage the appetite and the growth through this other bank and channel. And we have a fintech platform that goes between the bank and our clients and combined with our compliance software that we developed in-house. And actually, you know, it issues the command. So it allows us to manage the relationship through our fintech platform and issues the commands to the financial institution who then completes the transaction, whether it's a payment by ACH, a wire, uh, you know, check clearing, all of that stuff. We can do that and even create statements in our fintech platform so that it's indifferent to the client which bank we place them in because they're working with Safe Harbor. The other good thing about the fintech platform is if, if we put them at one bank and, and they you know have an account there, we can also open another bank account at another bank or credit union, and they get the advantage of insurance once Safer is passed, for sure. And they get the advantage of insurance, and they still only manage that those two accounts through the fintech platform and can have several bank accounts and several different mm-hmm. financial institutions. So are, is Safe Harbor, yeah, it sounds like similar to my days, I was in banking prior as well, and we aggregated banks for FDIC insurance. So is Safe Harbor acting as an aggregator of all these banks and you control and decide where the funds are deposited? So there's two ways of doing that, right? You can do the for the benefit of type of account where we would aggregate all the deposits and place them. And that is a model that we can do. And we do have some banks who, who talk to us and they want the, the FOB accounts where we actually have the sub-ledger, we take care of it and we direct the funds. But the way that we do it now, I think is is really beneficial for the client, which is at the partner and five-star relationship. We actually 
open a bank account with that financial institution. So they they have, they know they have the relationship directly. It sits directly on their balance sheet. The deposit sits directly on that bank's balance sheet. So it doesn't necessarily sit in an account called Safe Harbor. However, we manage everything from start to finish on service, whether it's onboarding uh, to compliance to issuing debit cards to managing wire transmissions. You know, we don't actually do the transmission. We issue the documentation. We collect all the, the, the validation work. And so we do all the servicing. The client doesn't call the financial institution. Right. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, like you're the outsource compliance and BSA for the bank. You're doing everything versus having the bank have a staff in-house. Is that correct to say it that way? It's correct. Other than the bank then becomes, and, and you'll appreciate this having been in banking, the bank then becomes our primary regulator, right? They have to make sure that they understand our policies and how we're protecting them in terms of compliance and, and what we're doing. And and then, you know, they, they audit our work. So the only resources they have to hire or put in place are are probably their auditors and, and people who can manage the relationship with Safe Harbor to make sure they're doing their due diligence and satisfying their regulators that they understand our business. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So that being said, I mean, obviously it's it's an emerging market, continues to grow, 38 states currently, and obviously that will continue ex- to expand and eventually it'll be approved on a federal level. What's the trajectory of growth, you know, for safe harbor uh, in terms of the number of banks. I would imagine, you know, you're entering each state that, um, you know, passes, you know, cannabis legislation, but is it more uh, a solution to the masses or are you targeting a specific size banking client? So as far as the bank selection goes, what we're finding are the banks that talk to us to have this type of partnership with us are those who understand fintech and know how to integrate fintech into their core and don't have a fear of that because you do have to use APIs. You are you know, exchanging data all the time. You have to make sure that the data of the client is, is secure. So we find that those are the best partners that we can find. We don't necessarily need 10 banks across the country because we've been doing this remote and, and, and FinTech platform allows for remote service. And we pick up money from over 41 states at this point in time. So we've been we've already got all the footprint in place. Mm-hmm. So as far as banks go, I would say, you know, the target is for us to have less than five bank relationships and of the size that they can actually grow a significant balance sheet amount in terms of deposits, which banks want the deposits at this point in time, especially. As far as the clients go, we we serve all clients who have licenses across the country. And the fact of the matter is what we're seeing is we are seeing banks exit the cannabis business. We are seeing them want to leave it. And that's because the pricing pressure is now coming on in terms of collecting fees for the compliance and the resources necessary. And you have to have the volume of customers in order to actually afford to do the program. So our main target at this point in time is looking at those financial institutions who want to exit the business because the demands are too great and the pricing pressure is on. Interesting. To give you an idea, when we first started banking this in 2015 of January, 
we didn't know how to price it, but you don't know what you don't know. And and so I really had to do just kind of an analysis and guess. And I was, I swear, I was I was watching the numbers every single week to make sure I could justify the pricing on this. And we started out charging 0.35% on deposits coming in with like a $3,500 cap on it. Quasi-competitor out there was charging 2%. So now, 10 years later, we are still charging 0.35 with caps on it. And they are, they're the ones under pressure to lower their fees, right? So we feel that we're in a prime position to continue to be fair and competitive in pricing. And also launching lending has given us a second stream of income that allows for the whole relationship and also very sticky, right? That's why I say quasi-competitors out there because if there's other fintech platforms, they're not necessarily doing the depository and the lending side, and we get to do both the way we set up our model. Well, 35 basis points is very healthy uh, <laughs> to earn. I, you know, I came from, as I mentioned earlier, the FDIC sweep space. So that's similar in terms of pricing, you know, in terms of us aggregating and deposits going to different institutions and whatnot. So I understand how the pricing model works. Uh, you me- you mentioned, you know, banks are getting at it, which, you know, is surprising to hear because of the heavy lift of, I guess, it's, you know, having that oversight internally and the expenses associated within the competition. Can you talk a little bit about the banks versus the state's role and responsibilities and the importance of, of working with the state regulators? It sounds like a lot of that might fall upon, you know, safe harbor if you're partnered with a bank. So, yes. Interestingly enough, I, I bears mentioning that while I was the CEO of Partner Colorado and Credit Union and during the launch of this program, in the first six years, we went through, or even seven years, we went through 16 state and federal examinations, which you know as a banker is really hard work to go through those exams. And, you know, normally you'd go through one every 12, 15, or 18 months, right? But because we were banking cannabis, because that education was so important, that's how we got the reputation in terms of what we did. And in hindsight, while that was so painful, and it was when my VP started looking at me and saying, you know, I could go down the street and earn the same thing and not have to go through this crap of exam every 90 days. And I said, Okay, this is when you're going to step up and tell the regulators, you know, you can't bring 20 BSA officers in with you because we really don't even have enough chairs to seat y'all. And I know you've been learning from us all this time. But in hindsight, that really refined whatever we were doing and set a standard across the country. Because not only was, was NCUA and those examiners learning from us, but I was already out there also teaching FDIC examiners. And making sure that they understood what they were looking at. And it set this, I would consider a gold standard in compliance. And after we launched, after they finally, I would say, left us to our own and then went back to normal normal exam schedules, what we were starting to see is the other financial institutions were being criticized more. So again, that education played in our favor and was painful, but I think it uh, made us the compliance program we are today. Interesting, interesting, and I, I guess you know, given you know what you just outlined, and given the complexities and unknowns in banking, what would you say is the critical aspect and role within the bank for these programs? In terms of regulation, yeah, and monitoring regulation, you know, 
Which they, group is, is, is not, you know, the most important? Bank secrecy. It's right. 100% a program that is wrapped around bank secrecy. And, you know, that's been around for decades. And that's why when people get to the whole idea of safer or safe banking act and this legislation, I'm, I'm sitting there saying nothing's going to change bank secrecy. You can't just do away with, you know, that regulation gets more difficult every year. It's at the top of the list when regulators come in or examiners come in. They want to know that you're protecting that financial system from what? Illicit funds. And and what's happening in the cannabis market? We have illicit operators who are operating in plain sight, hiding amongst the licensees. And this is this becomes the biggest problem of the financial institution. How do you know which is which? How do you weed out the bad players and, and make sure your licensed people who are playing fair by the games with the state are have access to banking while the others don't? Interesting. Interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit about the landscape currently in the banking and the cannabis industry. Given what happened earlier in the year with the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, as well as First Republic, uh, that has created you know, you know a lot of instability, if you will, in the lending uh, side of the marketplace, and in addition to the rising rate environment that we're currently uh, under. How has that impacted new loan origination for the industry? And, and what are you seeing currently in terms of new loan origination? Because that's part of your business model, I, I understand, right? Yes. Here's the great thing about cannabis and lending to the cannabis industry. There's so much opportunity because they haven't had access to this capital. Nobody would loan to them over the years or very few people would. So they would go out and outright purchase their properties. And of course, our best loans are those we secure by real estate. So we like those types of loans. So if you're going all over the country and you've already got a thousand clients, you really know what, what they're doing. You know their business already. You know how much money and cash they're bringing into the financial institution every single month. You then can make a very solid underwritten loan for your clients. I think that the landscape is great. We always have a pipeline in excess of $200 million that we're always kind of talking and making sure. Here's the one problem I find with the cannabis industry. They're used to having to go out to investors and do projection projections to get money from investors because that's what investors do. So now all of a sudden they're getting access to real commercial underwriting with a financial institution and they're not used to the fact that, well, we're looking at cash flow. We're looking at how do you service this debt, not how do you grow a new business with investment money. So they're so used to talking with investors, they haven't had the experience of talking with actual lenders who don't want to make projection loans because we're not in the investing business. We're really in the lending business. Interesting. And on, on the component of lending, obviously you're you're not in the bank, you know, you're providing this solution, but who does the underwriting for the loan? I would imagine it's the bank, but correct me if I'm wrong. And what's, you know, Safe Harbor's role in the process of loan origination for the bank? We actually do the origination, take all the calls because given our expertise on our our officer, I was I was updating my presentation yesterday. Our officer ranks, we have over 50 years of cannabis-related experience in terms of dealing with the industry and understanding the industry. So we originate it. We know how to 
um, actually go through everything in the industry and and understand whether it's going to be a good loan or a, a good client, that type of thing. We know how to underwrite there. And we underwrite the loan so that, again, if if you go to a normal business, they don't usually have five different accounts, a holding company, a management company, an HR company, a real estate company. And in every state, they have a different company because they're crossing borders, right? Very complex businesses. But we know that because we've been in the account business for so long. We've had clients with 20 or 30 different accounts because they have 20 or 30 different businesses across the country. It's, 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 it's very complex. So we do all the underwriting and we have our own loan committee and we kind of take it through the pricing process and the risk process. And then we work with the financial institution after we're comfortable with that. And we have a joint loan committee with like Partner Colorado Credit Union. We do a presentation to them. Are they comfortable putting it on their balance sheet for us? And if the answer is yes, then it, then we actually move to funding. So that's kind of how that works. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And let's talk a little bit about the other headline in, in, in the industry. You know, from the banking perspective, we covered that, but about rescheduling 280E and safe banking and, you know, how you see that playing out in 2024 and how will that impact your business? Interesting. I, I was reading something this morning that just happened to say, it looks like rescheduling or safer or both will be high priorities right around election time next year. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, right? <laughs> so, yeah, depends on who's going to need the votes, I think. But I see both of them moving forward. I do. I think the, the more difficult one might be the rescheduling, but I think that safer is going to be good. Will it bring, you know, somebody posted a comment on LinkedIn the other day, uh, a rush of banks are going to come into the market at that point in time, and they're going to fail, like we were just mentioning, the failures in California. And I and I mentioned her saying, I don't think so. They're not going to rush into it because, once again, DSA is still going to be the primary issue. You know, how do you have all those resources and understand your customer and understand their money? And then on, in terms of the actual industry, I, I think they, they have enough access. They have not enough access. They have access to banks if they really wanted at this point in time. They're just waiting for that time and they think that maybe safer is going to be it where they can get normal banking where it doesn't cost as much money to have that banking and doesn't have the demands of how can you prove this money is valid before I put it into the system that, you know, the compliance on them is is difficult from the financial institution that banks them. Now, rescheduling is going to be great for the industry. It's it's going to be great for us as a lender, too. They actually, if they get to the Schedule uh, 3 with cannabis, they will have a better tax position. Right now, they have an effective tax rate somewhere 70-80%. And that's because they don't get to take normal business deductions. Hence why they have so many companies, right? Where they're trying to get normal business deductions from normal businesses, not the licensed entity. That's the complexity there. And so when they 280E goes into effect on, on, on a Schedule 1, they won't have that problem on a Schedule 3, and I think the industry is really looking forward to that. When that happens, they're going to have more cash flow, which means they're going to have more profit, which means more of them will qualify for commercial, normal commercial banking lending for them. And I think also the rescheduling is really going to make investors take a bigger look at them and have more interest. Okay, man, that's great. Great to uh, hear that. I mean, we feel the same. Uh, with that being said, 
Obviously, there have been obstacles. You know, it's a, an emerging market, and there are still bumps in the road. Credit card, you know, being one of them. There have been some solutions that have been, you know, gray area solutions. But where do you see credit card, you know, role in the industry in terms of you know being able to access you know credit, which is not currently available? I think that there's going to have to be full federal legalization, you know, which is going to give your major credit card companies the comfort level that they can pass money, you know, over the rails that's considered legal money at that point in time. But then you still have the problem of, do they have to monitor that money going over the rails? Are they responsible for any illicit money getting in there? We know illicit players get into the financial system. How do you manage trillions of dollars going through the payment rails and, and you know not fear any type of fine because you're not watching the money? So I think it's really going to boil down with to the banks with whom they work and allow to place merchant processing out there because you know take Safe Harbor we've been doing it for we're in our tenth year now coming up you know we're, we know what we're looking at our clients if you, you don't have your compliance in order our clients don't get to bank with us and so. It comes down to will they allow every bank to you know have merchant processing or will they only have ones who have legitimate and proven cannabis banking programs? That's what I think it's going to boil down to in the end. Mm-hmm. When do you see that happening? I mean, do you have any uh, crystal ball, if you will, or what, what do you feel there will when there will be federal passage uh, of cannabis? And ha- how quickly after that happens do you see the majors, you know, participating in the industry. You know, I still think that full federal legalization is is down the road another five or six years. And I think, in my opinion, what will drive federal legalization is global legalization. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, it boils down to being globally competitive as a country. And I think that's going to have a real influence on our federal legalization. So I, I don't think, you know, globally, the legalization is happening as fast as it did state to state here. And I, I made that point because, you know, here, the states are pretty close. They can talk to each other and they can learn from each other. And that's, I think, how we went legalization from state to state in such a rapid pace. And, and really, a lot of that happened after COVID. I couldn't believe when we started, there were only two states that were legally on a recreational level and 11 states that were medicinal. And now we're up to 38 states, but they really started rolling after COVID because cannabis was like the other recession-proof businesses, alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, mm-hmm. and essential. And, and they really thrived during that time and were allowed to stay open in most states. And the tax money was so important to the states during COVID because businesses were so shut down that a lot of the states, I think, saw the benefit of of actual legalization. And, and it was it was interesting to see. But now going overseas at this point in time, they don't have the benefit of the close proximity state to state. And you're crossing cultural barriers from language to culture to acceptance and you know, while I see our clients starting to go overseas the same way I saw them go state to state, it's going to be a slower process, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. 
but that's an interesting perspective. Okay, I just want to take a shift before we we wrap up. You know, we talked a lot about you know uh, what you're doing at Safe Harbor, the industry, which uh, it's a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I know I enjoyed, and as well as our listeners, I'd like to talk a little bit about success and failure. You know, take a little segue here. Everybody loves to hear about others' success and the road traveled to get there. Can you share with our listeners what you feel has been your biggest career success and the journey to get there? And part two of that question is, how much of your success would you say is luck and how much is attributable to timing? (laughs) I always say timing is everything, right? (laughs) Exactly. I've I've always told the board, you pay me. A lot of money to know what time it is and when to, well, think about it. When we launched cannabis, right? It was the perfect time, although as fearful as I was every single day, you know, it was still a good time to get into it. So in terms of my biggest successes, you know, it's funny because I I was in banking, like you said, since 1983, and I was a pretty good CEO and ran a really good shop there. And then of course launched cannabis, but nobody will ever see me for anything other than cannabis. That's, that's now my legacy. So I have to say, it was the most difficult project I ever did. But the second most difficult, so you've already heard about that one, the second most difficult and success that I had was we implemented a culture at Partner Colorado Credit Union. And the culture, everybody thinks you can just implement a culture, walk away, give them, give, give them the values, give them their emission statement, and that's it. But, you know, to implement a really good culture where people want to work for you takes years. And our employees said, oh, here comes another management fad. And, and I said, oh, no. And to prove it, we actually implemented the culture. And a couple of years later, every year we competed for best place to work. And we were top 10 best places to work in Denver eight consecutive years. So I'm like, non-management fad, right? (laughs) I was was pretty proud of that because it's not an easy process. And and it's true. Employees think you're always doing a management fad thing that, you know, we'll disappear if we just ignore it. (laughs) It, Yeah. But in terms of luck, hmm, I I wish I had more luck. (laughs) I'll take luck every day. But I think, you know, the success that I've had is perseverance. It is so easy to quit. It is so easy to take the path of least resistance. And I've never been that person because I'm just too curious. I'm like, well, you know, opportunity really exists where nobody else wants to go or other people are saying, no, maybe we should consider yes. So, and then if you're going to do it, you know, I had a good mother. She's like, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And if it's worth doing, it's worth finishing. And, And so, you know, you just have to keep going after, you know, what you're doing and what you want. And you have to persevere and you have to perfect it. And mm-hmm. you have to be ready to move with the moment. And the industry has been like that in cannabis. It just keeps on emerging and still. And you've got to have the tenacity and the perseverance to stay up with what you started to the finish. I hope it comes. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think, uh, you know, more youth today needs to hear those those stories. You know, don't give up you know, persistence, perseverance, and so forth. But so that's great to hear. And hopefully some of our listeners will, uh, you know, be able to take uh, some good points away from there. Okay, a lot of success and and understandably so, given where you are today. Let me ask you, you know, pointedly, what has been your biggest failure, I guess professionally, that you've learned from to help you get to where you're at? 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I've had a couple, but you know, funny, the biggest failures I've, I've had that I immediately think about has to do with people hiring poorly, mm -hmm. you know, not doing enough due diligence and not getting enough references, which you can hardly get anyhow in this day and age, but really understanding the people you hire. And I think that, you know, I've, I've had a couple hires, I mean, who just really want to undermine everything else. And, and especially after the cannabis program was launched, it's like, well, let's get rid of Sunday. Let's find a way to make her look really bad, get rid of her and, and you know, or even steal things, right? Steal the IP, steal what you got and and try to take it someplace else right under your own nose. And and that was my fault for not doing enough due diligence. And, but, you know, there wasn't a great deal of access to people who understood cannabis when we first got into it as well. How do you do due diligence on someone's character? I would just think that people are who they are. I mean, I hear what you're saying about, you know, the failure. But I, I don't know if that's, I mean, it, I guess there's a level of due diligence you can do on hiring somebody. But I don't, I don't know how you uncover somebody's character and who that person is innately in an interview process or, or, or in, in any way. I mean, you, you find out down the road. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's just the way that I, I see it. It's, it's, it's difficult. I, I agree with you. But people's characters are their characters. Bad people are bad people. Good yeah. people are good people. You know, just my thought. Well, in, in this one particular case that, that I hired, you know, an officer level person, two days after I hired him, there were federal charges placed against him. Right. Hey. But had I done a background check mm -hmm. six months into it or, you know, once a year, I would have seen that a lot faster. Or, you know, I, and sometimes people will throw you a hint out there, even if it's, anonymously I, you know i remember getting somebody who threw me a hint through a, a, a silly email and said you really ought to take a look at that person you hired a little more closely and i am looking at this and i even talked to the board about it i should have taken it more seriously i got you okay makes sense i i, I understand that those are great areas uh, both success and failures that i think our listeners will appreciate uh, my last question before we go into closing, let's just, you know, we're going to take a little bit different direction, a little fun question. Your favorite book and what was the last book that you read? I have to admit that I'm reading a whole series right now that's, you know, about the apocalypse and the end of the world. I just get so far away from my work into some other world, you know, when I get that time to do it. It's, it's quite interesting and probably, you know, the, the favorite book I ever read. Now, don't laugh at this too hard, but, you know, the psychopath next door or the sociopath next door, it really changed my life on hiring people after that. Okay. No, that, that, that's why I asked the question, because everybody has a different answer, you know, and it's always interesting to learn, you know, what people are reading, what they've enjoyed reading. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, well, that's great. Well, Sunday, I really appreciate your time this afternoon, obviously, you know, being a, you know a CEO of a publicly traded company, obviously your time is limited. So I do appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us today. If people want to learn more about Safe Harbor Financial, if there are banks that are listening that are interested in, you know, getting into and learning more about cannabis banking, what's the best way to reach out to uh, yourself? and learn more and be in contact with, you know, the company. 
Well, a lot of people reach out to me on LinkedIn. So that's one way, as long as you know how to spell my name or, you know, there's not a lot of Sundays out there. So you're usually <laughs> easy enough to find me on LinkedIn. But, you know, we also have a website, shfinancial.org. So you can reach out and get information there. I'm always looking at definitely my LinkedIn and, and for interest there. And, and a lot of good people come through there that I, I do read. I'm not as fast on my LinkedIn as I am on my email. But usually if it's somebody who's in the business or somebody who's in banking that uh, wants information, I usually get them to the right people fast. Okay. Terrific. I, I appreciate that. Okay. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening to uh, this afternoon's uh, episode of Freedom to Buy uh, presented each week by Supernet. You can listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy at CannabisRadio.com as well as Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Uh, Please join us next week uh, to learn more about your freedom to buy. Thank you and happy holidays to everybody.